0: Today on the Church Next podcast, learn about faithful approaches to dialogue in contentious political times with renowned journalist and Episcopalian Ray Suarez. Welcome, everybody, to today's Church Next podcast. Today's podcast is based on a class we created with the 2020 election season in mind, although it is well worth listening to after the election is over. It is led by Ray Suarez who is a journalist and a lifelong Episcopalian. Ray was a senior correspondent for PBS NewsHour for many years. He also hosted America Abroad, which was a monthly documentary radio program broadcast on public radio stations around the United States until 2018. Ray currently co-hosts the program and podcast World Affairs. And among his numerous books is the book Holy Vote, The Politics of Faith in America. Our podcasts are always curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv, just as this one is. You can learn more about us at churchnext.tv, and if you'd like to support us, please consider a $9 monthly subscription that will give you access to all of our individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. So if you have managed to go through the 2020 election season without vilifying your opponent's supporters in your mind, even if not out loud, you're doing better than many of us. The current political climate suggests that the less rationally and less decently to one another we behave, the more we demonstrate our passion about the issues at hand. And the result is that the more important an issue is, the less productive work gets done on it. The less the issues at stake even come to matter in the face of our growing mutual disgust, and the more bitter and entrenched in our own viewpoints we become. Theologian Frederick Beekner once wrote, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Right now, we are a nation of skeletons, and that's why we need Ray's raise ideas about how to interact in civil ways, even with people with whom we profoundly disagree. It's not that anger is inappropriate. Anger is appropriate when we see wrongdoing. We aren't meant to be indifferent in the face of injustice. Engaging important issues means that we will feel anger, sorrow, and fear, but savoring our rage, using it to fuel hatred for our opponents, carrying it as a badge of honor, beyond our clear Christian injunction to treat other people with respect, that approach is not a productive use of our energy. It builds nothing, and it helps nobody. In today's podcast, Ray Suarez discusses an approach that does help, one by which we stand for our principles and use our energy to work toward a more just world without tearing each other apart. He talks about how social and political discourse in America descended to its current level and discusses the scriptural basis for treating one another with civility. Ray also describes some methods by which we may avoid villainizing one another and ways to compromise productively on important issues without backing down in the face of injustice.
1: Why are we uncivil? How did we get this way? Well, that's a great big question. The flavor of our politics, the tone, the understanding that all these things are undergirded by a set of rules that bind us to each other and that binds, act as a disincentive to incivility Well, that's all been severely tested in recent decades. If you look at how congressional leaders, elected officials, presidents talked about the job, talked about each other, talked about their responsibilities in 1980, even 1990, the changes have been breathtaking. The hostility, the language used, the demonization of opponents, it's all carried on in a way leaders and the lead of recent generations would find uh, remarkable and more than a little disturbing. But this shouldn't blind us to the fact that the kind of comedy and settled practices of post-World War II decades uh, were not the continuation of a long-settled tradition in American politics. It was only a breather after the tempestuous politics of the previous 150 years, where civility and comedy and genteel manners were sometimes the rule, and often enough, not. But since everybody listening to this course wasn't around during the battles over slavery or Indian displacement or genocide, let's concentrate on more immediate concerns. When the post-war consensus began to fade, and the unifying external enemies of the Cold War no longer forced us into each other's arms. It was a pretty evenly divided country. So what crept into our politics? An idea that your opponent was your enemy, that incremental steps toward a long-term goal were not preferable to long-term war to get everything you want, that compromise was for losers, Using culture as a weapon, as a sorting mechanism in working out our long-term goals because politics couldn't really do it anymore, became the tool of the day. And the use of language as a cudgel upped the ante in the already existing normal tug-of-war of our politics. It pushed away the idea that civility was even a goal. We were told the stakes were so high and the people on the other side so bad that getting along with them while opposing them in the arena was something not to be desired, that we no longer had to treat them well because they were just so awful. Republican pollster and consultant Frank Luntz was commissioned by Newt Gingrich to come up with language that moved the elector to test words that were hot and high impact Gingrich unveiled that messaging at a series of meetings with incumbents and candidates just before the 1994 midterm season began. And the disciplined troops of the Gingrich revolution rode this new approach to victory, giving the 104th Congress the first Republican speaker in 42 years. The Republicans came to Washington calling their Democratic opponents sick and decadent They called Bill and Hillary Clinton counterculture McGovernics and the enemies of normal people. The breach, reflecting splits and tears in the country that were already there, only got worse as war and recession and Supreme Court cases both heightened the contrast between the two sides and removed some of the bumpers, the guardrails that kept the tone of American politics at least somewhat restrained and dark money, an endless river of cash to independent committees, meant that they were no longer restrained by authorized association with a particular candidate. Even in paid advertising, you could say anything about anybody, almost no holds barred. And religion played a part in all of this too. The equilibrium, the desire for a kind of Publicly demonstrated rectitude on the part of the mainline denominations and the Catholic Church had given the society a kind of cultural thermostat. And when that sober, sort of National Council of Churches approved tone lost its cultural primacy, it gave way to something a lot harder and a lot hotter. From the pulpit, Preachers could tell their flocks that public officials didn't care about the deaths of babies. In fact, wanted them dead. That public officials desired the exile of God from all of shared civic life and wanted to push God entirely out of America. It was a reminder that we were now in an anything goes era with closely divided politics, with winner take all struggles over issues. It is both essential that we try to remain one people while we struggle over our differences. And it's understandable that we've gotten this way. Both things are true. And the stakes are seen as being so high that no point can be conceded, no quarter can be given, and no accusation, no slander is too out of line to lob at your opponents.
0: One aspect of Jesus's personality that the Gospels all emphasize is his lack of naivete about human nature. He understood people. When Jesus asks his father to forgive the people who are crucifying him, he understands them. He understands the ignorance and cruelty that consumed them at that moment. He understood them, and he, by extension, he understands us, and he still loves us. Ray has some ideas about why and how we should follow Christ's model of patience and enduring love in the civil discourse of our time, and why it's no more weak or naive for us to do so than it was for Christ.
1: I grew up in church. The church is in me, and I am inextricably bound to it. So to me, there is no one command, no one teaching that says, don't be a jerk when in dispute with people that you feel are your opponents, detractors, don't value the same things you value, don't desire the same outcomes you do. Rather for me, it's the entirety, the weight, the momentum, the current of everything that I've learned in a lifetime in the pews that counsels pleads for a way of being in the civic space, a way of moving in the world as a citizen that asks for me to go in a certain way. What's in that teaching? A suspicion that you don't know everything, so you shouldn't act like you do, and a care that you shouldn't behave as if you do. A demand for a kind of modesty, restraint, a reluctance to rout your opponent When he's someone you have to live with for the rest of today and even tomorrow and the next day. And that if you press your advantage in an unseemly, unmerciful way, you might expect harshness when the tides shift and suddenly that old adversary has the upper hand embedded in the parables implicitly and explicitly is advice about forbearance, mercy, understanding the point of view of the other and critically, about playing the long game, the leaven, the mustard seed are not looking for the whole story to be told in a moment, in an encounter, in a single face-off, but sees completion and rightness in the long-term, completion of the story. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the workers in the vineyard. Think of how many of those stories have an unexpected twist in them. You have to conclude Christians just aren't cut out for politics, right? I mean, that's what the, the weight of some of these stories is. Well, not for the purposes of this conversation, not for living out the values we teach or model. Could that really be the answer to withdraw from the world? How could it be? How should it be different? As we move in the next few decades to a country with a Christian plurality, but no longer a Christian majority, the status of the church as the default religious institution shaping our political life is going to have to come in for some reinterrogation. We Episcopalians are a tiny minority inside a future minority. But that minority status has already given us long training in how to do pluralism. We build coalitions based on shared goals and values rather than shared identities, because even though Episcopal members of Congress and residents of the White House historically way overstate our presence in the society at large, we just don't call the tune. And we know that. So we know what it means to get some of what we want some of the time because we alone can't get all of what we want all of the time. So what do we do? We wade into the fray. We enter the arena. We contend in the marketplace. We do it by saying, here's what I believe. What do you believe? Here's how I got there. How did you get there? My religion can't convince someone who doesn't share my religion. My commitment to principles that play out only in slightly different ways for others, that becomes the glue that holds us together. I'm not suggesting an apologetic, weak-kneed, watered-down witness in order to be popular. What I'm suggesting is that religion creates, guides, sustains our social sentiments. And that leads us to conclusions about the world. It's just one tool among many that modern Americans are using to analyze the challenges that face us today. That in and of itself will not carry the day or convince anyone. So be modest, be honest, be a light to light up everyone around you. That's witness that comes from who we are. Open to listen, ready to love, clear about what we believe while understanding it's not the only thing that people do believe.
0: Today's political and social climate focuses on the aspects of issues that divide us rather than on those on which we can agree. Despite what many people, including our political leaders, lobbyists, and some of our media would have us believe, We often have more common ground than we tend to think, even on divisive issues. Next, let's hear from Ray as he offers useful ways to work with people with whom we disagree by finding and building on common ground.
1: A workable civility has to mean granting your opponent the privilege of being seen to operate in good faith. Here's what I mean by that. One of the political motifs of our times has been the steady migration of what we say and how we act toward each other, toward one that's not only dripping with contempt, but also marked by the willingness to declare in public that our opponents are not only wrong, but bad, and are trying to work their will out of bad motives. We are right and good, our opponents are not only wrong, not only people we disagree with, but evil. I've long despaired over the tone and tactics of the last 50 years of American battles, for instance, over abortion rights. In the wars over abortion, I see everything that's wrong with the way we do politics in 21st century America, and especially in the way we wield religion as a weapon in trying to get our way. Rhetorical mortar rounds are shot from right to left and from left to right, saying over and over again that people who would preserve abortion rights don't care about women, hate children, kill babies, and are only sham believers in any religious code. Abortion itself has changed remarkably in the five decades since Roe v. Wade, but the war. Has remained very much the same, with both sides clinging to outmoded arguments and clinging to their contempt for the other side. Though I must say, the worst offenders in this regard are the anti-abortion forces. This they will not allow, for instance, as a gambit from the other side. I don't want to see another frightened teenager feel that she has no other choice. I'm with you on a lot of things. What can we do together? What's demanded of the abortion rights forces from those who would make the practice illegal in all circumstances is complete capitulation, a total denunciation of the practice, even though they know full well that will never happen. I've long been convinced that if breakaway renegade forces could whisper to each other, look, what could we do to have fewer abortions in America? What would that look like? Could I loosen my grip on your neck in this endless scrap if we could agree on things that would make abortion less frequent by making them less needed? If renegade forces in the artificially drawn dividing lines of this conflict could agree that some really easy things could be done to make abortions less necessary and less frequent, would that be a good thing? Well, not if you want everything and not if you want the war to continue. Leaving getting everything you want as the only possible outcome you'll accept is a sad feature of our politics today. Leaders dazzling their supporters with the prospect of getting everything they want is an unfortunate deception that keeps some battles going on forever. Because as I mentioned earlier, compromise is now surrender. And when you're on a crusade, nothing but breaching the gates of Jerusalem is going to be accepted as victory. Singles are rejected, home runs only please. And so we get stasis, combatants so in love with the combat that they seem to have forgotten the reason for the battle in the first place. Thus, for some Americans, universal single payer becomes the single acceptable answer to healthcare's challenges while tens of millions of Americans remain uninsured and we're locked in never ending combat with people who will contribute millions to try and make sure health insurance companies can operate to the extent possible almost completely unregulated and in a way that locks those millions of people out. And that system, that battle the way it's being fought today allows countless lost years of life because people cannot afford coverage or consistent care in what we often call the best healthcare system in the world. Our problems aren't intractable. The way we fight them seems fated to make them intractable. How you break out of this prison of our own making may be the toughest question of all, and I concede that. But it requires the very forbearance, listening, love, empathy, and sympathy that I talked about at the very beginning. That's what a person of faith would offer, buoyed by a belief that the mustard seed planted today gives shade and home to countless birds, just not for a while.
0: In the Gospel of Matthew, Christ says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Next, Ray talks about how to follow this approach in bringing light to the world with our faith in a contentious and difficult time. Getting
1: there, here's what we can do. Matthew 7:21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Religion in the American public square has become a say thing rather than a do thing. Because so much stock has been placed in the showy, public, performative aspects of the Christian faith, The brand has been wrecked to the point where the most secular generation of Americans in 200 years, adults under 30, when asked to name attributes of Christians, use negative terms for seven of the 10 most frequently named traits. Judgmental, anti-gay, and hypocritical are the top three. Try building a brand around that. What should faith in the public square more appropriately look like? Do you have to have pastors cluster in around your desk for a group hug or a laying on of hands? I'm sure there's a way of talking about what we share that would tell others what we find valuable about that and showing the world at the same time that we live what we say we believe. If a decision on the SNAP program or the minimum wage, or public school funding comes up? Do you subject it simply to dollars and cents analysis, to green eye shade stuff, systems and inputs and results? Or does God's vision of a just economy, the sufferings of the poor, what the word enough means as we work and strive and save to have good lives ourselves? If you were at a backyard get-together, and your desire to see one policy over another is based on your Christian social vision. Is what you'd tell, is that what you'd tell all the other people in the conversation? If a petition circulated in your neighborhood to exclude multiple dwellings from your town, which would have the effect of bringing affordable housing closer and changing the socioeconomic mix at a local school, would you sign the petition? If you didn't want to sign it, would you tell the person who came to the door why? If you raised your hand at a local meeting, called to discuss that, that debate, would you mention the Bible or Jesus? What would your neighbors think of you if you did? I don't know what the right answer is or what the right answer is for you. That beautiful old spiritual says, we are not ashamed of the gospel. And I can hear you now That's a little harsh. No, I'm not ashamed. It's it's just part of my private life. And my private life, after all, is private. I get it. And I'm definitely not saying there's only one way to handle these questions. I guess what I'm saying is there's a way, but it's just not the same way for everybody. There's a way that will feel natural to you, I hope, to be a lamp lifted high, to give light to the whole house. If we believe there's a reason for the continued existence of our church, that there's even going to be an Episcopal church in 2100, we have to have a reason to exist beyond just doing what we do by us, for us, year in and year out. We should model a way of life that's wide awake and aware and deeply rooted in our ancient faith. I have no doubt we can. Bishop Curry says the world will know us by our love. The old prayer book says people will know us by what we say, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to serve God. Or as it says in the first chapter of James, be doers and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I hope that we can find a way to integrate that message into our daily lives in a way that makes sense for us as individuals and says something great about this place that we love and that we give our lives to. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you all.
0: That's the end of Ray's commentary. If you'd like to hear more of his ideas, check out his book, Holy Vote, The Politics of Faith in America. You can also learn more about productive discourse during a divisive time through a couple of Churchnext classes. Try Parker Palmer's Bridging the Political Divide and a curriculum we built in partnership with the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, Make Me an Instrument, a guide to civil discourse. Both are available at churchnext.tv. And for now, both of them are free. Make Me an Instrument will remain free. Bridging the Political Divide is available as a podcast as well. That's the end of today's podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for being with us today. And if you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. We will close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, during this election season, we pray for this nation that is deeply divided. May we come together for the common good and do as you have called us to do, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you through creation. Amen.